even if they think we really screwed up big time, they've capped their loss. They were smart to sign that high-low agreement because otherwise they'd have been paying $4 billion and not the 2.5. What level of aggressiveness you're willing to accept in the uh, setting of those limits and the high-low limits because it's basically it's like gambling. Hello to all the Risk Management Monthly listeners. It's Greg, and I'm in Michigan, and Rick, of course, is in uh, sunny, sweltering California. This is the June issue of, uh, of Risk Management Monthly, June 2018. Rick, I'm, I'm going to let them know to begin with that you've got a little froggy in your throat. Why is that? I do have a little froggy. I don't have a good... Uh, explanation for why it came, although I just had a plane flight from Philadelphia, which was like kind of the plane flight from hell, which is basically normal plane flight now. They're all full. Uh, you know, the plane was 45 minutes late. I was in the three across and I was in the window side being squashed against the wall kind of thing. The lady in front of me thought that she'd like to get her. She thought she was in one of those lie flat seats. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> but she kept on banging it back. Like, it's got to be able to go further than that, than this. And then there was a little uh, urchin behind me decided, let's do some uh, uh, pushing of the of the seat of that guy in front of me just to make sure he knows I'm here. So uh, all in all, I would say it was a normal flight. Yes, yes. Sounds to me like you've now learned to live like the rest of us. Um, we're going to uh, today reflect on a lot of different things and a lot of things are coming to roost around things we've talked about in the past. A uh, shout out, by the way, to uh, Jerry, your sister back at the, uh, at the headquarters, because she did a little research for us. But we're going to start out with one of our listeners who's got a very interesting question. Um, and uh, she and I spent some time on the phone, have discussed this, she says, during peak ED hours, one physician in her group has to supervise three advanced practice providers. She, uh, we've just hired several new PAs, she says, and I'm not comfortable with them yet. They do not know what they don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a line from Risk Management Monthly. How, uh, and she wants to know, how are most groups handling the uh, advanced provider staffing situation? Are they allowing advanced practice providers to see higher level patients independently? The PAs in our group are wonderful, very bright, very skilled, but they're not physicians. I want to implement stiffer supervision rules, but I'm getting serious pushback from our lead PA and the chairman of the department. Majority of the physicians want double docs during the peak hours, but company says we can't afford it. Well, I can't afford getting sued at the end of my career or, or for something that the PAs did or didn't do that I had no knowledge of. But this seems to go on and on. What's the duty? What's the problem? What can I do? Rick, make some comments. Well, she wants to know about staffing of uh, PAs and it implies something regarding uh, ratios, not PAs then NPs. And I also, I want to, I want to do this um, single person effort to stop using the term advanced practice providers. I don't want to be a provider. 
Nobody wants to be a provider. We want to be advanced practice clinicians, APCs. We're clinicians. We're not providers. But in any case, um, I think most places have more doctors than PAs, uh, which is, uh, I think, a fundamental mistake. And then some places have pretty much the same number of PAs as doctors. And in this place, I think they're, they're really ahead of the curve. They got three PAs working and one doctor supervising. So they've got a lot of eggs in their basket with regards to the PA uh, program and a a lot of supervision requirements on the part of the physician. But I believe that one doctor supervising three PAs makes a huge amount of uh, economic sense. It gets gets the right person to the right uh, complaint. And I think it's very enlightened, actually, to have three PAs and and one doctor. And I think the vast majority of emergency departments have not kind of figured that out yet and are using some ratios that are really suboptimal. Well, first of all, nobody's published anything that I'm aware of that shows uh, quality of care related to physician and advanced clinician uh, ratios. I've never seen one paper that's looked at that. And that's funny because staffing is one of the biggest issues day in and day out in emergency departments. But Rick, I think you're missing part of her point. And that is, she's got new people. She doesn't know what their qualifications are. And as she points out, they they don't have to show her every case. Well, uh, And that is part of the problem. Well, I wanted to take this one question that is the time. The first question was, what are other people doing with regards to these ratios? Uh, they've got three that they're having to supervise. I'm saying that's an unusual situation, but in fact, a, a bright one. The second one was, are, are other emergency farmers allowing their advanced practice clinicians to see higher level patients independently? And the answer is, that depends. Some people limit their PAs and MPs to minor cases uh, in some kind of fast-track situation. Uh, Others allow them to see just about anybody in the department. However, that doesn't mean that they will see them independently and um, the chest pains and the pulmonary edemas are going to go home without having some kind of doctor, uh, doctor see them. So I think that there are two ways to do this. One of them is to relegate your PAs and, and NPs to more minor cases for the rest of eternity, which would I would you know, which would be a horrible thing to consider, or to allow them to become competent to see all of the, the patients in the department by some kind of process where they're gradually introduced to those patients, so that they can have a career that has a lot of stimulation, a lot of variability, a lot of intent and variation and intensity just like emergency physicians do, because we want to create a career that will sustain them for 30 years. Yes, but do you you expect them to see these patients without having to report to anybody? No. Our, our senior residents have to report every case they see to the attending. What should be that oversight then on, on such clinicians? Because when yeah. you go to court, you're going to have to talk about what did you set up to make sure this thing works. 
Well, one of the key word in her questions was to see uh, these patients independently. Now, what does independently mean? It means that there's no interaction with any of the physicians are involved and having them see that case. And I think that that, frankly, is risky business. If they can see patients independently that have uh, it, complex problems, then why was there ever an emergency medicine, medicine residency established? Uh, why is not a 28-month uh, PA adequate to see all those cases? I don't think they are. And I think that, honestly, we need to have a relatively low threshold for saying, okay, I've seen this chest pain patient. Here's what I think we ought to do. Uh, are, do, you, do you want to take a peek and, 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 and are you in agreement with me that it, it, it does not in any way absolve the physicians from becoming involved uh, in cases that are, are, you know, the level five cases? Well, her problem with this whole scenario, and she and I spent a fair amount of time talking, was that people uh, get a choice as to whether to present or not. They use their judgment as to whether present to the attending physician. Now, if if they're experienced and have been there a long time, probably most of the time they're okay. But as she points out, they don't have rules about this. And and uh, you know, I'm not here to push any other uh, product. But a few years back, uh, I did an interview in Emergency Physicians Monthly with the gentleman who heads MedStar, uh, that's in the Washington, D.C. area. And this is a physician who set up essentially three levels of, of uh, advanced clinicians, and they have to go, uh, they are supervised based on their level of experience. Now, they always have the option of presenting to the doctor, but the real question is, uh, must they do this? And what are you going to present in court to show that you've set up some system to advance and progress the knowledge of these people? As, as I remember, uh, when we did that interview, he had three levels of people, junior PAs, staff PAs. Junior PAs were hired, uh, and that was their first year. Then they moved on to staff PA, uh, and, uh, and that was up to five years. And then senior PAs were five years and over. And he said he thought that that mirrored somewhat the training that emergency physicians get in the residency. Now, you, we can argue about this back and forth, but I think the question does come up. You probably need to have something to show why uh, your signature appears on a chart and a patient was sent home and you had no knowledge or idea that this person is here, that's what this doctor is complaining about, Rick. Well, I think every uh, group, and I know the group that she's with, uh, is, is responsible for developing a graded program of integration of the PAs and MPs into their department with um, growing uh, um, where the supervision basically over time decreases based on the experience of the individual. 
Uh, I think there needs to be formal formal uh, training of these folks. I think there needs to be informal training of these folks. I think they need to have tight supervision and that, that this be in a formalized program so that, in fact, you can show, here's how we bring in our PAs and MPs into our department, um, something that is quite um, organized and rigorous. But By the way, without uh, some indication on the chart, that the patient has been provided um, uh, exposure to the physician, the physician has been involved, I think it's very difficult to charge the the 100% of the fee. You realize there's an 85% fee for uh, for those patients where there was no direct uh, patient-to-doctor supervision, uh, if you're charging the 100% fee and the doctor isn't even aware of the patient, I think this could be a, a fraud situation and one needs to be very careful. The other thing is, I, I want to raise the issue that, that she in our discussion raised, and that is, if you're going to have the physician not see a case or be aware of that case, why have your name? Why sign the chart at all? Because if you're signing and get the 100%, now you're complicit with fraud. If you're not signing the case and you've not seen the case, why isn't that okay? And, you know, she and I, I asked, what do they say? She said, well, the hospital makes a sign. I don't understand the reason for that because, because advanced clinicians have to be approved by the hospital. Um, why, should there, why should there be a sort of a, a fake physician signature on the chart? Don't understand it. Well, there's, yeah, this is, there are a number of elements into, into her um, email, which I think all of them were, were very provocative. Uh, I don't know what signing the chart means if you've never seen the patient. I have no idea because you're not really able to um, assess very well whether the history has anything to do with the, the real history or the physical was the appropriate or whether the pathology that was there was found by the or not found by the uh, clinician. So this is clearly the garbage in, garbage out phenomenon. And so Somebody comes up with a diagnosis of uh, pharyngitis, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's uh, mononucleosis or, or something more specific that does uh, require a different, uh, different follow-up. So I think, that, I, I, I think that supervision is really, really key here. At our courses, one of the, one of the themes that is, co comes up over and over is the lack of supervision provided by to these uh, people, particularly the people who are fir uh, first starting out? So I don't know. I know I have no idea what that chart signature means. Yes, the law says, depending on the state that you're in, that certain um, supervision must be taken. But it doesn't mean that every chart must be signed. That is. I don't know of any state that says that whatsoever. In fact, only Virginia requires that a physician be in the same building as the PA or NP when they're rendering emergency care. So the, the laws on what the supervision level is is very, very, very loose. And I honestly don't think 
that most groups, any groups, uh, you know, are basically going to be charging 100% because the doctor puts his name on the bottom of the chart. That Everybody knows that that is not the way you get to bill 100%. That doctor has to physically see that patient. A discussion about the patient is not adequate. Um, the fact that the physician has to physically see that patient. So I think that, you know, her, her, her pushes for stiffer supervision and that she's getting pushback. Um, I don't think there, you know, I think that this person basically is trying to, you know, help this group while the group sounds like it's trying to kind of like move people through as quickly as possible. And don't worry, we're okay. Especially the senior PA, uh, says, uh, is pushing back as well. I, I think that the, the physician should be the determinant of the level of supervision. And this physician is uncomfortable with the level that is currently there now. She wants stiffer rules. And uh, I, I, I think that maybe the other physicians would support her uh, in this endeavor because this is dangerous business when, you, when you're having high-level patients being seen unilaterally a lot of them by your PAs and MPs in a busy department. By the way, for those of you who want to read that interview uh, with the head of MedStar, it appeared in February 2016 of Emergency Physicians Monthly. It's still online under the O. Henry columns. Uh, the other thing is that was an article which, as you know, we, we had people write in. We got their responses. Uh, it was, it was tremendous to read the various responses that came in from uh, PAs, NPs, and physicians. Uh, you might want to take a look at this. If, if this is part of your responsibility in your group, uh, you're supervising these advanced clinicians. Uh, I think you ought to take a look at this because uh, this is something that is not going to go away. And it is very important as we're deciding what the workforce needs are for the country in emergency medicine. What does this mean? What are we going to do? And um, I, I was just speaking on this issue uh, to the emergency department um, uh, management association meeting in, in uh, Florida last week. Um, a lot of discussion about this, about how it should be handled. So, Rick, I don't think we've heard the end of this this thing yet. Uh, and I, I think that ASEP is going to, at some point in time, uh, have to cut on this issue. Yeah, uh, there's no question that with so many thousands of PAs and NPs seeing patients in the emergency department, uh, it's incumbent upon the physicians who are medically responsible for the care in the department to have a defined program that they can show this is how we do it in our department. Uh, <clears throat> otherwise, I think that there are some liability issues that are real. And I think, honestly, that that plan needs to be followed. I think it needs to be pretty rigorous. Moving okay. on. Moving on. Um, as you remember, it was just two months ago, we interviewed uh, our good friend, Dr. Bitterman, and a uh, quick shout out. Bob Bitterman has been fantastic to this program and has always participated. Well, 
again, as I traveled around in the last two weeks, um, it, it was one of those situations where they didn't want to talk about wine in a month. They wanted to talk about what Bitterman had to say about psychiatric patients and stabilizations and Imtala. And uh, they weren't backing away from this thing. Uh, they think we got to win this. We uh, ASAP has got to at a go amicus here with these people and we got to fight this thing and for those of you who were hot about this of which there are many uh bloomberg health law and business insights uh posted may 8 2018 uh has bob bitterman's piece when is a psychiatric patient stable under federal law comma m tala and this is this is a heavy uh, production. It's got uh, quotes on cases around the country, who's doing what, what they're saying, and I think that it's worthwhile to uh, for those of you who see psych patients. And I don't know a, an emergency department that doesn't see psych patients. Most of us do not have psychiatrists available. And for the feds to now, in a case, and we quoted that case, sh uh, with, for them to say, you have to call in a psychiatrist to stabilize the patient, I have no idea how that's going to function in this country. We'd have to shut the emergency departments down. Be, and, as is pointed out everywhere, uh, the longest remaining patients in most emergency departments are the psych patients. It's already a problem. And unless somebody's got a, a, an immediate solution, uh, we need to start building uh, what the offense is going to be uh, in taking care of this. Because the psychiatric patients, there's not going to be less of them in the country. Uh, and uh, Bitterman's summary of where we are legally and through 20-some years of Amtala is, is a brilliant piece. I recommend this to you for uh, <laughs> bedtime reading if, if, if you want to have nightmares. Well, this is a complex matter. Uh, the uh, case involved, I think, one hospital. And that hospital, yes, it, I think it was asserted that Patients who are psychiatrically troubled are not stabilized until seen by a psychiatrist. That hospital ultimately agreed to settle with the feds, and that ended the, the, the situation. They paid some, I, I think it was in excess of a million dollars. Yeah, 2.7 million, right. And, and that was the end of it. Uh, unfortunately, what would have been better for the whole industry is to have that case litigated because uh, that way we could have fought it. Uh, we could have done a good job fighting it here. Here we, we had just one hospital going in alone kind of thing against the feds. What are, what's the likelihood of the feds being able to beat them up? What's the likelihood of the feds having, you know, a multiple of the resources that this hospital would have to fight this? So unfortunately, that didn't happen. But had we had a, a trial over this, maybe we would have gotten a better outcome and a more reasonable outcome uh, because the slippery slope of this is, well, why don't you have a cardiologist see all the chest pain patients? And are you having a surgeon see the belly pain patients? 
and there's an orthopedist see all the dislocated shoulders and, and why not? What, what makes it different when you have a psychiatrist versus the cardiologist? I don't know the difference. Yeah. Unfortunately, most hospitals in the United States, this would be impossible to do. And hello, why do you think people got boards in emergency medicine? They can take care of the vast majority of these situations. When you think about it, exactly what does the psychiatrist bring to the table at that moment in time? I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, particularly for patients who constitute a danger to self or others, the emergency physicians seem to be pretty good at figuring this kind of stuff out. We are trying to undo this settlement. The settlement basically says, the hospital says, I give up, you win. We want the hospital to say, no, you don't win. And um, unfortunately, now we're trying to go around the back door to uh, get the Medicare people to uh, rethink this because it is untenable uh, what the resolution of this was, uh, that a psychiatrist does need to come in. And they took their open psychiatric ward and converted it into a locked ward and all kinds of huge expense for this one hospital, this one hospital, when every other hospital, if they were subject to the same scrutiny, they'd go nuts. I've got another case that uh, <laughs> Dr. Bitterman has weighed in on uh, pretty heavily, and that is another Mtala case which was recently decided, and that's uh, Patricia Fr uh, Frederick uh, versus South County Hospital and uh, Wellness Center. It's an urgent care walk-in. Now, what happened to this patient, uh, I think very well could be malpractice. But the problem is how they got it to be an Amtala case. Now, the states have malpractice laws. We know how to deal with that. How do these various walk-in clinics and, and uh, urgent care clinics get to be involved in an Amtala decision having to do with emergency departments? I think that, uh, I think that this, this is a very provocative situation. Uh, the patient was treated, came into this walk-in urgent care center, and she had symptoms which a uh, middle-aged woman might have if she was having a heart attack. Uh, so she went to this hospital's urgent walk-in clinic. Uh, they decided what she was having was ga a gastroesophageal reflux, and gave her a GI cocktail. Uh, Rick, what's the what? What is the medical reasonableness of depending on a GI cocktail to make a diagnosis? Well, this myth was cleared up thirty years ago that I you know. can differentiate these two by giving some uh, Malox and lidocaine and something else, and uh, have them slug that down until the pain went away. That well, obviously, it wasn't cardiac. Um, well, this is like emergency medicine 101. It's 101. That's not the problem. Go ahead and sue them for malpractice. Here's the problem. 
Now they want to make it an Amtala case. And here was the court's opinion in this. Uh, was this, is this, or is it not a dedicated emergency department? Well, how's the first, what's the first thing that, that a good plaintiff's attorney is going to do when asking that question? He's going to pull a copy of the bill <laughs> and they're going to look and see which of the codes they used. And of course they used the hospital's billing code for the emergency department. Next, the, the, what, the, what the court noted was this was an off-campus department, but its advertising was such that it sounded like it, ta- it takes urgent slash emergent cases. So it, it, it bills like an emergency department. It says it can take that sort of thing. And uh, and uh, during this the calendar year, they went ahead and looked at the kind of cases this place saw, and said their representative case was this kind of case. It was an you know an urgent care. They had chest pains. They had abdominal pains. They had severe headaches. They had all that sort of thing. It wasn't just a walk-in clinic. And so the real problem here, as Bob points out, is it's owned by the hospital. It sort of bills like the hospital. It advertises non to see people who are suddenly uh, sick or injured in some way. You know what? This doesn't go so well. And as we as, and so the court's opinion was that the hospital could not ask for a summary judgment to get Amtala thrown out. The court didn't say that, that, uh, that this is a uh, Amtala violation. What they said was that the plaintiff could use Amtala in the court proceedings um, and, and could go forward because the hot, the, the, Walk-in clinic did not have enough things to get Mtala kicked out. They were Wait, not there. Well, you know, everybody uses the word urgent care, urgent care. Um, doesn't not the word urgent imply some level of um, extremis or uh, um, a rapidity of I have to be seen right away kind of thing? Now, a cold would not be considered something that would be urgently needing to be seen, but chest pain may be considered something that needs to be urgently seen, and certain kinds of belly pain may be that way. Um, so the word urgent itself is, in, uh, is problematic, and I well, think that there are some places where they're getting people to take that word out. Well, it, it, there was a uh, the way the court worded this decision, and I think I should just read this, is uh, additionally, uh, the definition of a dedicated emergency department would also be interpreted to encompass those off-campus hospital departments that we would be perceived by an individual as appropriate places to go for emergent care. Now, uh, we've got to remember that when I was uh, president of ASEP, 
we took the prudent layperson definition right to the Congress of the United States and said, of course we ought to get paid to see these people because the prudent layperson can't tell the difference between what is minor and what is major. Well, they're shoving that back up our nose now and basically saying, well, the prudent layperson, if they see urgent or emergent or something like that on the sign, they think you can handle that kind of thing. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's not it's not an easy situation to decide who should be there. Well, you're splitting hairs when you say uh, urgent versus emergent. I mean, what the heck? These are such a fine semantic differences, if if if, if they exist at all. Yeah, absolutely. So now they're using things like convenience care. Right, exactly. And, but here, here's the important thing. As, as Bob points out in his article, if you're going to set up something like this, um, get a consultation from people who know how to look at your, your paperwork, your materials, your signage, your everything top to bottom. Uh, because you should not in any way, shape, or form. Now, if if you're just owned by individually, not part of a hospital, MTALA doesn't apply to you. So even in Texas, where they have these freestanding emergency departments, uh, MTALA does not directly uh, uh, take over. But if you're part of a hospital system and that hospital uh, receives federal money, which virtually all of them do, I don't know any that don't, uh, you're go- you could be caught on this. And I think it's worthwhile discussing. I mean, Bob's point's very straightforward. Get somebody like Bob uh, to give you an opinion as to whether you cross that line into representing emergency care on behalf of the hospital. Also, I think, Greg, that you may be uh, wrong with regards to the freestanding uh, emergency departments and whether they have any kind of um, MTALA obligation. You may be right, but listen, can we get some of our listeners from Texas to get us a clarification on uh, what freestanding emergency departments uh, are required to do? those that are owned by hospitals and those that are not, uh, I'd appreciate a clarification if you would. Yep. No, no. If if there's a lawsuit out there going on about this right now, uh, everybody, everybody needs to to know about it, but um, it's, it's uh, becoming a, a real issue. And I think that as we, as we try and compete for business, where does it begin and end? What should we tell people? Uh, and and how should we be representing ourselves out there is an important part of this process. And I'm, I'm not sure we're doing it as honestly as we could at this point in time. Where do you want to go, my friend? All right, next. I've got, I've got some very interesting legal cases and some decisions. We're going to quote the, uh, the uh, appellate law's review of Propofsky, P-O-P-R-A-V-S-K-Y, versus Botsford Hospital. This is the uh, Court of Appeals, Michigan Court of Appeals, which came down February 27th, 2018. 
It says a claim involving professional relationship and medical judgment uh, sounds in malpractice and not in ordinary negligence. And the reason this comes up is this hap- actually happened to, to, to not be an emergency case, but it was a case in which uh, a decision had to be made about ambulating a patient. Well, a patient went, slipped on the floor. Now, usually a slip and fall case is what? Common negligence. You know, if you slip on the, on the uh, spilled water in the grocery store, that's a slip and fall case. That's common negligence. But this court said, no, the decision to whether a patient can ambulate or not is a medical decision. If you want to bring an action patient, don't do it in the regular uh, in the regular course of negligence. This is medical malpractice. It's a medical malpractice question. And so in this particular case, they said, you know what? If a physician slash nursing judgment is involved, uh, even if it's a something as simple as a fall in the hallway at the hospital, the decision for that patient to walk was a medical decision, not common negligence. So there you go. Listen, I've got an interesting case from uh, Becker's Hospital Review. Um, it's a case uh, from uh, San Lorenzo, California, in which a patient died as a result of an ambulance accident. There was a T-bone type crash right at an intersection. And as you can intuit, there were lights and sirens going on. And um, they don't know whether this, when they reported this, they didn't know whether this person died as a result of the accident or as a result of the reasons that she was being transported by the uh, uh, ambulance. Well, you know, you get you get to choose, you know. Yes, yes, which one? <laughs> I, I think I know which one I'll take. Thank you. Yeah. And this is a great example of the dangers of lights and sirens. And I, I would dare say that this person probably did not need lights and sirens. Virtually nobody does need lights and sirens uh, in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, and it's dangerous business. And if you're the medical director of a fire department that is, is that still has got these primitive perceptions of when lights and sirens should be um, placed on, like when you're going to get the donuts and those kinds of things, then yeah. then then I think that there are some liability issues here because I would be really pissed if a, a relative of mine died in a traffic accident, code blue when it was totally unnecessary. Well, what you're saying is there are indications for lights and sirens. Because you have them doesn't mean you should be using them. I I think that uh, in all the studies done, the most dangerous vehicle per, per road traffic mile is the ambulance, simply because it attracts rubberneckers and other things go on. So I, I couldn't agree more with you, Rick. I had that that problem when I, uh, many years ago when I was a project medical director and sure enough, uh, the ambulance went through a stop sign in Michigan in the winter in the snow and killed two kids in a Volkswagen. They were going lights and sirens and, and speeding to get an 85 year old woman with known cancer who was dead at home. Uh, Part of, part of this is not just the ambulance service. 
part of this is is us as a people deciding when we're going to put other people's lives in danger. There's no reason for that to be a 911 emergent balls to the wall call when they knew that woman was about to die. It just doesn't make any sense. No, I, I agree. And um, I wonder how this transition to a more uh, thoughtful license sirens policy is going in the, in the country. Uh, I would think that given the fact that the people in the ambulance are at risk, the drivers, that this should be something that should be moving along, but this is just reported. Yeah. And, you know, and I think the problem is this, we've gotten used to a standard where nobody's ever sat back, had a cup of coffee and quietly said, why exactly are we doing this anyway? Because I, I, I think that we've published in, um, in the emergency medicine abstracts some articles that actually look at that question. Yeah, that right. how, how often is it important that you get to the hospital a minute earlier? Well, what they did is they um, looked at how long a lights and sirens transport took. Then they did the identical route following all the traffic laws and saw how long that took. And the difference was something like, you know, two minutes. And there's nobody who's two, whose life is going to depend on two minutes, more or less, in the ambulance. I got a cute one here, too. This one has got, um, it's, it's got, <laughs> I, just, I just thought I wanted to put it in. Okay. Uh, I don't want to give this nurse's name, although it was listed in the uh, document from which I got it. This was also out of Becker's Hospital Review. Uh, she has filed three successful whistleblower suits over a 10-year period uh, at three different hospitals in three different states, uh, and those whistleblower suits resulted in uh, $33 million worth of fines and pay, uh, payments to the government by these hospitals. And, oh, by the way, she made $6 million. Right. She, uh, gets, she gets, like, what? 30% or 20% of the, of the final payout. I mean, it's, it's pretty damn good, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, now all of these were about, uh, billing irregularities as you might anticipate a an attorney who represents, uh, this nurse says she is quote, virtually, <laughs> virtually unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, the, are you serious? What's your name? <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a, there's a blacklist for, no way, no way. What he should have said is she virtually has no need for employment. That's exactly <laughs> true. Why would they, why would they care if she finds another job ever in her entire life? <clears throat> All right, you want you want to do uh, a, just a few cases here before we look at that uh, that uh, that article, or you want to do the article? We can do some. We can your do the call, article. man. Your call. All right, do your article. I know that you guys have just reviewed this for uh, EMA as well. This is provider um, and practice factors associated with emergency physicians being named in malpractice suits. This is in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It came out in February of this year. Um, you know, in the uh, preamble to this article, they always mention all of these statistics. Like, I'm going to give you a couple of them. Like, they say 75% of emergency physicians will be named in the suit at least once in their career. On average, 
Physicians spend 50.7 months of their careers involved in litigation. Number three, nine of 10 physicians report overusing or overordering tests or procedures because they're concerned about getting sued. And lastly, the national estimate for defensive medicine is uh, about $46 billion. Now, now we want to be men and women of scientists. And all of this data is between five and eight years old. And that was in the studies that were between five and eight years old. How long uh, was it before the study got published that this data actually got generated? So a lot of this is very old news. Yes, it's it, it's old news. And uh, whenever you're taking, you you've always got to look at the center that produced the study. So who who did this paper, Rick? Well, this this background information was, was one of the reasons that they thought this study would be kind of an interesting thing to do. This is a look at the association between emergency physician characteristics and their practice factors that they are, are involved in and the risk for being named in a malpractice suit. It's a very detailed, methodologically powerful analysis with all sorts of statistical uh, manipulations and jujitsu. Um, and you might expect that because Jesse Pines is one of the uh, authors of this paper. <laughs> uh, Jess is a friend. He's a good guy. I would only point out that this is in 87 EDs in 15 states, 9, 9 million visits. But if you look at that length of time, this is five years worth of stuff. Um, this is not a clear representation of the United States. You understand that, Rick? Well, yeah, there's going to be a lot of things at the end of this that we can kind of uh, beat up this paper up on. They had a whole page on their limitations. Uh, in any case, it looked at one emergency department group. Oddly enough, the name of this group is nowhere in the body of the paper. Uh, <laughs> you only find it by looking at the, um, affiliations of the authors on the last page. And the group is U.S. Acute Care Solutions, which wasn't called the U.S. Acute Care Solutions back in 2010 to 2014 when this paper was done. And this, uh, and so this is looking at only this one group. Uh, they looked at, as you had mentioned, 2010 to 2014, they looked at 9.5 million visits treated by 1,029 physicians, seen at 87 emergency departments in 15 states. Um, now, I think it's really important to acknowledge that this group is self-insured, so they're highly motivated not to screw up. They're also highly motivated to train their physicians uh, with regard to risk management principles and uh, CME. And in fact, this group has had a CME course in risk management which they've been putting on for at least the last 15 years, where most of the physicians in the group uh, are, re are required to go. Yes. All, all yes. of the little things that you ought to know on the side, because the core question here is, can we extrapolate the findings of this paper to the community at large? And I think that there are substantial issues. I think uh, the variables they looked at, however were important questions. Yeah. And because, because they go out, they looked at, does years of, of practice make any difference? If you're board certified, does that make any difference? Uh, uh, EM boards. Uh, it, does the admission rate of the hospital make a difference? I.e., 
if you're prone to admit a lot of people, does that protect you from lawsuits? What about the relative value units per hour seen by the doc? Because docs always say, well, they're pushing me so hard, you know, to, to, to move the meat. That's why you get sued. Total patients treated. Uh, so if a doc saw, you know, on average 30 patients a day as opposed to 15, did it make a difference? Did he, if he worked at multiple facilities, was it difference? This is actually, oh, uh, the one I like best is uh, patient experience data, i.e. Press-Ganey scores. Did they make any difference on getting sued? And Rick, tell us what they found in this study. Well, you have to remember now, we're talking about 9.5 million visits. They had 98 malpractice cases against 90 physicians. So eight physicians, I guess, had two cases. Nobody had more than two. Uh, that means that the, the ratio of suits is one per 100,000 visits. I remember, Greg, when we were quoting numbers like 30 to 40,000 cases would give you one suit. One yeah. per 100,000 is what these guys had. They've already won. They're already the winners in this thing because I still think that most of the insurance companies and if you take all the groups in the country – that one in, in 25,000 to 30,000 visit rate is still probably right. Uh, well, I, this is I, an I, odd I don't, group. I don't think so. I think that there, the rate of malpractice suits has dropped like a rock. Only 19 claims resulted in payouts. So 19 payouts out of 10 million visits. Holy smokes. Greg, I think we should just shut down. Yeah. There's no need for risk management monthly. There's nothing out there going on for crying out loud. It, it kind of looks that way. And the, uh, and to have one suit per hundred thousand visits. Oh, and that, and that isn't a payout. That's a piece of paper. I mean, uh, Jess, you've done whatever you've done. You've done it right. It's going well. well. I, I think that what this says is number one, I don't believe that this group in, in, is in any way typical. Number one, number two, right. Number number two, they have done a, they have focused on not losing money uh, by having uh, lawsuits. You and I knew who was their chief lawyer, uh, you know, risk management lawyer guy for uh, a decades. Right, right, and, exactly. Um, and, and we knew who their chief medical officer was, and these were superb, superb people. Yeah. Um, what else did they have here? Oh, the only factors associated with being sued, looking at every freaking variable you can think of, uh, and this barely, barely reached to st statistical significance, I must say, was increased years of practice. The more, you're in, the more years you're in practice, the more people you're going to see, the more opportunities you're going to have to have to make a mistake, potentially get sued. Yeah, hold on, though. That That's innately, intuitively wrong. If you work for a lot of years, you ought to get smarter and smarter and smarter. No, uh, no, no. I think in some ways we get dumber and dumber and dumber. We get very focused on uh, making are, the are same. Are you speaking for yourself here, Rick? Or uh, what, what are you telling dumb, me? Here? Dumb and dumber. Dumb and dumber. Yeah, exactly. And the second thing was the visit volume seen as an attending of record because some of these places they had. Uh, residents. So they had to call you the attending of records. So basically the more people you saw, 
the more likely you were to get sued. Uh, and, and for that, they spent a bajillion dollars doing this, this study when I think that a lot of that was kind of intuited. I think that, yes, your claim that physicians who are older physicians, more experienced physicians should be uh, sued less because they're, they get, they get the more savvy about how to do all this stuff kind of thing. Well, that just didn't uh, turn out to be the case. What I did like, though, is the things they could say. Test ordering, those guys who say, well, I'm defensively ordering tests, didn't make any difference. There were the, uh, people who were big orderers versus small orderers. Uh, the lawsuit ratio was the same. Uh, the, length of stay in the department, which you would think, well, if we kept them around longer, we probably picked up more da- bad disease. That didn't happen. I was interested in some of their baseline data, like uh, the mean shift length for this group over this long period of time was nine and a quarter hours. The average number of shifts per month that these physicians did was 9.28. Now, that's not particularly rigorous. That's like working once every third day, a nine-hour shift. Yeah, that's like a halftime guy, right? Exactly. Um, The admission rates... Uh, were about 20%, and they didn't really vary between those who got sued and those who didn't. But the fact of the matter is, when you have 98 malpractice claims out of of 9.5 million visits, it's virtually impossible to show that there's any associations that are going to pick out the doctor that got sued once in that that, – with those huge numbers, uh, because 98 is like a hiccup out of 9.5 million visits. What was this uh, other study you pulled here on concussion diagnosis? Oh, wait, wait, wait. One more thing. Yeah. Um, So Carol Sachs, who's at UCLA, wrote a editorial about this paper, and it kind of says it in the title. Malpractice claims it's a crapshoot. Time to stop the self-blame and ask different questions. Well, that's what, in essence, what this paper says. It is just dumb luck when you get hit, and there doesn't seem to be anything that can be done to uh, avert it. But I don't like that conclusion because I think this group was very special group, and uh, you cannot say that of all of the groups in the country by any stretch of the imagination. I don't believe. Because with nine, with the small number of suits, one per hundred thousand, there would be no need to have insurance companies for crying out loud. I mean, it's like yeah, it's, paid out of cash flow, right? Exactly. It's, it's nothing. It's, right. It, you could get it out of petty cash. Yeah. Um, so there, when you look at this paper, all you see are equations and 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 statistical terms that you've never heard about, but. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of that fine tuning, really, when you only have 98 suits, it's virtually impossible to show that there are any meaningful associations when there are 98 suits. And here's the other thing, Rick. During that period of time, three states um, moved medical malpractice in the emergency department uh, away from common negligence to to, – uh, willful and wanton sort of situations. The degree to which that influenced this is not is also not known. Well, you know, they did uh, use the ASEP ranking of 
you know, they ASAP ranked the states with regards to uh, things like uh, enlightened malpractice laws and things like that. Yeah, and right. they gave them a, a report card. But yes. the fact of the matter is, is that this report card would need to go back to the year 2000 and when this study began to, uh, to, uh, so it was, it was the report card linked up to actually when the, when the patients were seen or when the cases were, were filed. I think that, um, with all of the malpractice reforms that have gone on, uh, it's only going to, I, I think that it's going to kind of stay where it is. I don't think it's going to get bad again. What, what we do know is, and when we talk to physicians involved in, um, the, who are the lawyers of the, uh, these kinds of companies, they say there are bigger claims. The, uh, average dollar cost per claim is going up. Um, while the number of suits is going down. And we did do that paper out of the doctor's company that listed uh, the most common causes of claims uh, with uh, stroke being one, heart attacks being two, spinal epidurapsis is being three and down the line. Yes, yes. We reported that just a few months ago. Uh, it was interesting, however, that uh, chest pain, which for 40 years had been number one in emergency <laughs> medicine, has dropped down the list. And I think that uh, that's that that should be noted that it, the neurodiagnoses, stroke, um, <clears throat> epidural abscess, those sorts of things have, have risen because the dollar loss per case is so high. Uh, I do have another paper. This is a quickie paper. Um, it's about not making the diagnosis of a concussion in people who have blunt head trauma. And um, it's 250 adults who meet the World Health Organization that uh, definition of concussion, uh, seen at three hospitals in Canada, one academic and two community hospitals. These are in uh, Alberta and the world health health organization, uh, defines a concussion as one, an external mechanism where there's a transfer of energy to the head, uh, where there's confusion or disorientation, loss of consciousness, less than, uh, 30 minutes or other transient neurologic disturbances and a Glasgow coma score of between three and 15. No, so no, no. 13 and 15, uh, right? Uh, no, if you have a three, that's three, <laughs> it's dead. In, it's dead and normal. Dead that's normal. dead, dead to normal. Exactly. Yes. I'm glad you caught me on that, sir. But you can see it's kind of a loose, loosey goosey kind of thing here. Right. But in any case, they had the physicians answer a questionnaire and they also had patient interviews uh, regarding documentation and follow-up concerning um, the diagnoses that the patients uh, were given. 16% of the patients who met the criteria did not have a diagnosis of concussion listed by the physicians and were considered misdiagnosed, which is uh, I don't know if it's, you know, you could put down a diagnosis of blunt head trauma. I mean, that's not a misdiagnosis, no. but it's not as specific as you would like. Um, because there's the implication that people who have concussions need to have some kind of spe specific follow-up and rest or these other things. I'm not so sure how evidence-based all that stuff is, but they're supposed to have it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, In fact, uh, this week, 
there is a new blood test for biomarkers for contusion of the head, and they're trying to get it worked out where they can get almost an instant result. So you could, at, at, on the football field, on the sideline, not only ask them a few questions, but do a blood test. And if it's uh, positive, then they'd have to hold them out of the game. If it's negative, they could go back into the game. Now, believe me, this is nah. not ready. This is not ready for prime time. All I'm telling you is the company that released this, it, it, I, I promise you, Rick, when we go to San Diego uh, for the 50th anniversary of ASEP, you know, the Scientific Assembly, they're going to have a booth. And they're going to be pushing this thing as if that blood test is better than asking the questions. Well, I think it'd be better if it was a urine test. You <laughs> just pee right at the sideline there, you know, uh, into the cup and take care of two problems. At you know, one it was time. interesting too. So these people suggest that failure to put down the diagnosis of concussion was uh, something that was not admirable. I think that it could be such that it may lead to some kind of medical legal risk because we believe that people who have concussions need to be treated in a certain way and that it takes follow-up and specific follow-up and specific testing to see what activities you can and cannot do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and by putting blood head dropping down, you're not, you're not doing this person any favor. In addition, they point out that the people's electronic medical records had a clinical decision support component that would have helped them make the diagnosis of concussion and put it down uh, so that the coders in the uh, in the in the billing office could have listed that at, uh, as one of the diagnoses. Yeah, no, there's no question that, that this is going to have huge implications. Every high school in, in the States, everybody who heads the soccer ball, everybody who does that, everybody wants the same question answered. Is it okay for Johnny to go back to the game at some point? Are there any other markers we can use? Are there any medications they can take? that's going to uh, protect their brain. And all of those are still open questions. And I, I don't think we should think at this moment in time well, that whether you call it a traumatic brain injury, whether you call it a, uh, a concussion, we don't have the answer to those questions just yet. Well, you know, uh, the papers on kids' concussions, there's a there are a lot of those. This is the first paper on adult concussions. Uh, and this paper on adult concussion basically said the diagnosis is not made when it should be uh, most of the time. Moving on, uh, you got any, hey, I got it. So I told I, you about my whistleblower and my my six million dollar whistleblower who nobody will hire. Um, yeah. What else do we have here? Um, well, I got cases. Yeah. Why don't you? Yeah. 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 All right. I want to give you a case now, which uh, actually was against a plastic surgeon, but could have just as easily been, uh, been against an emergency doc. And this is in a state which is notoriously good for doctors on uh, malpractice, the state of Tennessee. And this is a patient who had an outpatient tummy tuck. 
was released to drive home two hours after the surgery. Now, the patient came in. They did use both uh, sedation through the vein as well as some local sed- uh, anesthesia. And the patient was given a sandwich and a bag of chips, which he ate, didn't vomit. Two hours after the surgery, he's discharged home and told he'd be safe to drive home. About halfway home, he experienced a stabbing pain in his stomach. This caused him to lose consciousness, uh, and and he he had a terrible auto accident. He suffered serious injuries, um, all kinds of things. He was life flighted to Vanderbilt Hospital, and um, he did make a recovery. Now, in this case, there was no documentation by the nurse or the doc or anybody else that they did the usual things you do to find out whether a patient is neurologically normal and able to drive themselves home. All I can say is two hours after you've given somebody IV sedation, uh, there better be something on that chart. I can't believe that an elective procedure, they didn't require the patient to have a driver to drive them home. Uh, I can't believe that somebody wouldn't have written on the chart, awake, alert, walking without difficulty, all those sorts of things. (laughs) All they've got is eat the chips. Uh, I think that you're right. But on the other hand, uh, Greg, everybody's covering their butt when they say, uh, get somebody to drive you home after your colonoscopy. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that propofol, you are out in a second and you are awake in a second. And, um, yes, I think it's probably prudent that they, they say that, but, uh, I, I have a hard time um, with this, that it was two hours after, and this person suddenly had a pain in their stomach. What's that going to do with the sedation in the first place? Maybe they, uh, had some other, uh, issue going on there. So I'm not so sure that uh, your case is really about, uh, sedation and, uh, letting people go in- inappropriately quickly. And it's a $1.6 million case. So if, Watching them do a few things and writing it down and having them talk to you for a while um, protects you from that. All I'm saying is if we've given sedation in the emergency department, either document who's driving them home or make sure that patient, you've done the usual and customary things to make sure they're all right. I I just think that that's a simple thing to do. And, you know, uh, Greg, in the past, we've talked about these high-low arrangements. Oh, yes. Well, Randy uh, Danielson sent me one. It related to uh, – Randy's the dean of the uh, Arizona School of Health Sciences. He's a PA. He teaches in our uh, boot camp, and it, which is coming up in about two weeks. Yes, where sir. we have 400 eager PAs and MPs and primary care doctors who's going to suck, suck up some emergency medicine – Anyway, he sent us a, a case in which there was a high-low agreement. Um, the uh, high was going to be two and a quarter million dollars, and the low was going to be five hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. It re- involved some back surgery that somebody had that kind of went bad. And uh, what did the jury award? 
$4.5 million. That's why they have high-low arrangements, Rick. What happened in that case was the defense just got a birthday a birthday and Christmas present all wrapped into one. Well, I would be a little, if I was on the plaintiff side, I was going to be saying, why would you come up with such a low number for uh, for uh, $2.25 million? I lost $2 million here because you were so conservative. Yeah, well, you know what? That's the discussion that goes on. I've been involved in high-low discussions and, and have seen this kind of thing happen. Um, that's the chance you take. What it, what it says to the plaintiff is, even if the jury hates us, we're still going to walk away with half a million dollars. What it says to the defense is, even if they think we really screwed up big time, they've capped their loss. They were smart to sign that high-low agreement because otherwise they'd have been paying $4 million and not the 2.5. Well, that, that was a good example. It basically kind of gets into the um, how clever uh, your lawyers have to be, uh, what level of aggressiveness you're willing to accept in the uh, setting of those limits and the high-low limits because it's basically it's like gambling. Yes, exactly. It's like gambling. And I think um, the only place where anyone can go wrong here is not explaining to the patient what a high-low is. And they have to sign off in writing prior to the jury coming back to the high-low that they have agreed that those are going to be the limitations. Uh, uh, An attorney who didn't explain that fully could be opened for legal malpractice. Well, Greg, that's pretty much what I had. You, uh, time-wise, I can tell you, we have about uh, five or six or seven minutes. So you have something really fast? Yes, I do have a really fast one. And uh, I, you're going to know not only what state, but what county this took place in. Wayne County. No, no. Over uh, 200 miles away. Uh, A failure to report signs of suspected abuse, child abuse, and death of the child. Now, this wasn't a small child. This was an eight-year-old. And the hospital actually had a pediatrician on board who specialized in child abuse. This child was sent to that pediatrician who said... You know, the family was split. The the eight-year-old had been with the father, question of some marks. He found one small mark, which could have been the result from a cord or a whip, you know, those thin lines. Uh, But no other findings. Reported that back to the court. Within a few days, the child is found dead. Now, the father, uh, the father was uh, grabbed for uh, murder. He died before trial. The grandmother, uh, who was at the home too, is serving life. But they sued the hospital and this pediatrician for not immediately requiring that the patient was uh, removed from the home. And they knew or should have known that uh, the child's life was in danger. Uh, this was a $48 million decision. Now, 
Whether this, they're actually collectible for forty-eight million dollars, I have no idea. But uh, what what it points out is, I think there can be some hostility in juries when they think that doctors should have moved quicker to protect a child in this kind of situation. And of course, it's Cook County, uh, Illinois, Chicago. Well, well you know, uh, this child got referred to this. Uh, special pediatrician for some reason yes you know it yes. wasn't just oh uh, oh by the way right and so uh there was some historical elements of this that were probably uh omitted uh and, and not just the fact that this ha- child had a questionable linear um contusion or the like so there unfortunately there's a lot of the details out of this that are gone. And the other thing is, um, $48 million. Uh, it's like, uh, I thought, correct me here, Greg, that you really got money like that when you maimed somebody, but a child lost earnings or anything like that. Would, what is this punitive damages? What this would is, cut? I think this is a jury, which wanted to send a message. I, again, I have no idea how this, uh, pediatrician. There's no pediatrician who has $48 million. Uh, and I sure as hell don't know. Most hospitals probably aren't good for that, but in any event, it's a, it's an amazing amount of money. Should we talk about some wine? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, we've been, uh, we have been spending most of our time recently with, uh, with, uh, us manufacturers, with uh, growers. I want to mention two in Australia. Now, I'm fortunate in that the office I'm sitting in right now is about 400 feet from a very decent wine store. Uh, and the, <laughs> and, and coincidence. They, what a coincidence. You get and, one a bottle on the way home. No, no, no. They're not going to be mentioned. We're not into uh, cheap advertising here, but They've got a 2014 Cabernet from somebody, a vintner called Ringbolt in Australia. Now, this is part of the Western Australia people. This stuff is 22 bucks a bottle, which is absolutely comparable with a lot of the stuff we drink from California. And it is superb. This is, uh, this is something to get. And the last one, it, we move in Australia to the other end of the country to a place, the Hunter Valley. Uh, and there's a, there's a place called Brokenwood that has been producing the, the, the great red wines of, of uh, Australia are almost always Shiraz. The white wines are uh, Semillon and the Hunter Valley uh, Broken Arrow Semillon is going for 20 bucks a bottle. It is terrific. So if you've got a, a wine store near you, uh, require, uh, ask them to see if they can get a hold of those bottles. Fantastic wine for the money. There you go, Rick. Hey, listen, you, can you imagine the cost of shipping a bottle of wine from Australia? I mean, this is probably actually $2 wine that costs so much to get it over here that that makes it uh, the, the price that it is. No, $2 Australian wine is called Yellowtail, and we've all been to receptions where Yellowtail is served. Uh, and, and the, you know, and here we 
pay eight bucks for it or something like that. But uh, you're right. It costs a little money to send the stuff over. But remember, Rick, they send it in, t- in, in ships that are about the size of the, the state of uh, uh, Vermont. I mean, these ships are gigantic. So the cost per bottle isn't that bad. Well, maybe it's bottled over here, too. The other thing that I thought is kind of nutty, uh, which is an analogous situation, is uh, Fuji water. And Fuji water, the bottles are sent over to Fuji, where they uh, fill them up out of some spigot and send them back. And they're considered the most unecologic water you could possibly have because of all of the shipping of this water going back and forth for water that is no better than water in New York City. None of it's none of it's any better. And of course, what, a, what an affectation. I know we live in the Great Lakes and, uh, uh, you know, we buy water at 35 cents a thousand gallons. And you know what? I've never had anything bad happen <laughs> from uh, from drinking Michigan water. I see people in the airport carrying these bottles of called smart water. Yeah, I think that the I think it should be called dumb water. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you just paid exactly. four dollars for a bottle of water. You're Fortnite. smart. No, 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 once no. I think you're dumb. Once you've taken two drinks out of that bottle, uh, you've you've uh, inoculated the bottle. So by the end of the day, I'm sure they have all kinds of things growing in there. All right. Well, anyway, uh, that's it for this month. So from uh, Greg Henry and Rick Bucata, so long till July. Okay, Greg, I'll see you. Actually, I'll see you in two weeks at the boot camp course, and then we will pick up and do July Risk Management Monthly. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 